Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about precision agriculture and nutrient management. We have three members of Extension's nutrient management team, Dan Kaiser, Brad Carlson, and Ryan Miller. Can you each give us a quick introduction? I'm Brad Carlson. I work out of our regional office in Mankato. I work on uh, uh, fertility issues uh, ex- extensively related to water quality, but uh, other things also, precision ag and so forth, and uh, work statewide uh, with, of course, the concentration being near Mankato where I work. Uh, Stan Kaiser. I'm located out of the St. Paul campus. I'm a state uh, nutrient management specialist. I do research uh, mainly focused on macronutrients, um, particularly P, uh, phosphorus and potassium. And I'm Ryan Miller. I'm office out of Rochester, the regional office there, extension educator in crops. So I work on various agronomic issues from fertility management to crop pest management and also to dabble a little bit with the precision ag realm. So. All right, starting off, what what is the current state of precision agriculture? Are growers using these technologies? It's really a mixed bag, and it almost gets down to specifically which technologies we're talking about. Uh, uh, you know, some of the technologies that are more equipment-oriented um, have become more or less standard equipment in, in new uh, tractors and combines. And so if you're uh, uh, the size at which you're purchasing new equipment, um, you know, your tractors have auto steer, your combines have a monitor, uh, and so forth. Obviously, the, uh, the planter monitor is, I don't even know if people consider that precision, but it kind of is, and that's been around for, for a couple of generations now in various iterations. But when it comes to the, the non-equipment uh, type uh, technology, uh, it's really quite a mixed bag because a lot of that stuff gets into... Uh, the use and the analysis of data, the application of data. Uh, there's different farmers have different uh, uh, interest levels in that. Different farmers have different opinions in that. Uh, some of those services uh, are purchased and, and not uh, done uh, by themselves. And so that kind of comes down with your philosophy, uh, who you're working with. And uh, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, when it comes to, to those sorts of things. And then, of course, there's the, the, uh, the precision technologies that are more on the commercial realm, uh, things like variable rate application. Um, grid soil sampling has become fairly standardized. It's not uh, necessarily the, the, uh, the rule quite yet, but uh, uh, it's pretty common. So what you see, I guess, is a long rambling way of saying it's really a spectrum of what's out there. Uh, in general, though, in my experience, uh, we've got a lot of farmers out there, um, part-time farmers, uh, but not insignificant farmers, guys that are running five, 600 acres, maybe 1,000 acres and working a full-time job. Uh, see a lot of those guys really aren't doing much of anything at all, and I think there are a lot of opportunities that some of those guys could really take advantage yeah, Brad, I'd, I'd agree. I think there are, there's a lot of technology out there, but largely it's underutilized, particularly uh, when we know a couple of high-level precision users and, and what they're doing with, like, let's say, yield monitor data and doing some enterprise-type analysis where they're really trying to drive home this kind of profitability and looking at land and, and, and where they're profitable, where they're not, and what kind of adjustments they can make. You know, by and large, I'd a lot of growers just aren't really there. I mean, the yield monitor for a lot of folks, it's more like an oil gauge where 
you know, when they're coming across the field, they know what the yield is at that moment. And, and uh, you know, they aren't taking it to that next level. Let's look at more than just what it's at that, at, at that point or even uh, compiling a map that I can reflect on at the end of the year. But, like, how do I utilize that data and, and how, how do I make use of what I'm collecting? And, and what's interesting about that, Ryan, is I don't think anything had a bigger impact on driving installation of drain tile across southern Minnesota than yield yield maps. Uh, farmers were looking at what their yields were in places where they had good drainage right over the tile lines. They were looking at how the yields went down in between them. Uh, or some cases they were diagnosing that they had broken tile or things like that that weren't functioning. Uh, a lot of that was what drove a lot of the installation of drain tile. Uh, kind of slowed down if for no other reason because a high percentage of stuff has is, is got it in it now. Uh, but uh, uh, a lot of that drove a lot of that boom in, in tiling land across southern Minnesota uh, over the last uh, two decades really. And uh, it made it really easy to do the financial analysis on it. You could just simply look at what the yield differences were, pencil out what your, you know, what you expected price is on a bushel per acre, go to the bank and say my input cost was the same in both spots. Uh, made it pretty easy to loan money. The thing that's funny about it is though, uh, that type of analysis could be done with a lot of other crop inputs and a lot of farmers just kind of stopped with the drainage and they're not looking at a lot of the other things they do. Yeah, and that's one of the things too, and I know, Ryan, you had, I think, a, a good point there is you look at, you know, some of the, there are some guys out there that are really trying to look at this data more and try to diagnose things in the field. And, you know, we get a lot of questions always in the nutrient side on looking at poor soils and in looking at trying to make nutrient-specific recommendations to what we deem poor soils. But the, the question is, how do we assess that? And I think the, the power, particularly with... Um, the precision ag is the fact that you can start looking at cons yield consistency in some of these sites because some of these soils just may be poor because of drainage and in a dry year maybe they're your best areas of the field. The question is looking at consistency and I think having particularly yield monitors in place now I think have really given the growers um, at least an opportunity. The issue is really time and, and the expertise to do that and I think you could look at a whole other industry. You'd think that some of the co-ops and stuff could provide some of that in terms of um, looking at taking a, a, a bigger, a closer look at some of these yield maps, but you don't always see that. And that's one of the things that I think moving forward, particularly if we we're still see some of these same situations with um, you know, these commodity prices where they're at, I mean, it might be something to really look at because in the end it might be pretty cheap to really take a good look at whether or not there's some areas of the field that it's really worth throwing a lot of money at if it's going to be consistently low yielding and trying to really diagnose what some of these issues are. Is it drainage? Is it just the fact that, you know, that's this areas aren't gonna yield as high consistently, so so really what do we do? And you highlight a good point there, Dan, that you know, the to get to that level of analysis, it really takes us, you know, kind of a specialist of sorts. And there's not a lot of horsepower in terms of personnel uh, in the field to to do a lot of that work for us. You know, that I I think as we move forward through time, maybe more people will take that on as a, as a role. But I know a lot of our uh, independent consultants, they aren't real interested in, in taking on the technology role and, and try to do that. And so then we see it kind of move over into the retail world. And so there's there are large operations in, in southern Minnesota that have, have uh, 
retail agronomists that are utilizing some of these precision tools. And, uh, you know, as a cautionary note, I think a lot of it kind of falls back into this um, kind of a, a sales tool from a, from a precision standpoint. And I'm going to highlight a, a, a case example here this fall. Uh, I met with a farmer and uh, he came in with some some real granular grid sample soil test value you know result maps and I was real excited because these maps had different colors on it I thought well this might be interesting from a case study standpoint to look at uh, variable rate application of various nutrients and uh, we start digging in on it and uh, the map it wouldn't have been the color coding I would have picked because his very high uh, test values were green his high test values were yellow, so immediately your mind on yellow is going, oh, caution. But these were high soil test values in the field, and uh, uh, you know, and then it kind of cascaded from that. I think red was already at the the medium category, and you sit down and start looking at his uh, at his uh, his maps, and you're like, boy, uh, you know, bad news for me. Thinking like this might be an interesting uh, uh, case study in how to variable apply nutrients, and maybe do something in those terms, but. Uh, Instead, we're seeing uh, this kind of misleading color coding, and the fact is like 70, 80% of his, his ground probably didn't even need any fertilizer next year, which was good for him. I mean, in the, in the long run, he can cut his fertilizer budget next year dramatically, uh, but it did open some challenges to how, how am I gonna get that work done? You know, How am I gonna fertilize that small area of the field that needs some maintenance fertilizer? You know, Ryan, you and I had a conversation with a crop consultant uh, a number of years ago uh, related to some of these really interesting analyses that uh, analyses that uh, we had looked at with a farmer that we know who was really on the cutting edge. And we were all excited about, you know, well, you can do this and you can do this. And the, and the guy took a step back and he said, well, I could do that, but I'm not going to because my clients won't pay me to do that. And, and it really was kind of a bucket of water on our heads like, well, yeah, I guess you're probably right. Um, there probably aren't a lot of farmers who are willing to pay uh, a per acre rate or an hourly rate to a crop consultant to go on a fishing expedition, which is basically what it amounted to. You just started taking piles of information and maps and started to look for correlation. And in many cases, you could end up with the uh, end result of uh, you're managing this as, as well as you can manage it. Well, I mean, how much is that worth per acre to a farmer? A lot of them probably have the feeling in their head that they are managing as well as they can. So are they going to pay somebody to get a second opinion and, and confirm that? It, it, it becomes problematic. And when it comes to the retail side, you know, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that um, most of our retailers out there are not charging for agronomic service. The only way that's uh, being cash flowed in their operation is through sales. And so um, I'm not going to, to demonize them and say, well, you know, they're out there trying to rip people off and just use this as a sales tool. But the fact of the matter is a lot of farmers haven't been willing to throw a $4 an acre uh, fee onto you know, they're, they're the service for the, the, just for the sake of analyzing and looking at the data. And so it stands to reason that if the, if the interpretation is getting done uh, at a retailer, it's probably coming back with a fertility recommendation 
in many cases, it may be a little bit aggressive compared to, to what we would recommend. And it's absolutely critical then for the farmer to interject themselves into that. When I, when I get a map, I get some soil test values, and now I'm getting a recommendation, it's important to ask questions. You know, what are you, what are you using to determine rate and, and some of these things? Because, you know, if you're not getting how I'm making decisions and learning about that, then, then you're going to really be... You know, you're, you're going to be uninformed as far as what, what's happening in terms of management. Which areas do you think growers and industry can benefit the most from incorporating precision ag technologies into current farming systems? I mean, we've talked a lot about, I mean, in the last question, a lot about, I think, this. Um, you know, mainly you look at kind of where we see a lot of it. I mean, I know we've, we've seen auto steer get pretty well entrenched in a lot of it, and I think there's some definite advantages of that for Swath control, particularly, and then also planters, auto shutoffs, saving on seeds. We look at things where you can pretty easily, low-hanging fruit, where you, you look at saving on costs. You know, the question, and I think on this is, you know, moving forward is, you know, some of what we were just talking about is, is some of this, this more of this data analysis. And you look at a lot of these software packages that are out there. I mean, I think they build them pretty simply so you can go in and make, make the maps. Um, but in terms of getting really into deep into the data, there isn't as much where it's really easy to do. I mean, it's not as intuitive as it is. And, you know, some of it growers, too, you, you may not have the time to do that. But um, I think there is some power there if you start looking at it, you know, especially building some of these things into um, some of these programs to make it a little bit easier to take a, take a deeper look at. Particularly, I think looking at yield stability is really one of the things that interests me to look at. If you're trying to make decisions, because there's areas of the field that it just may not be worth where you're not going to get enough out of it to, to throw a lot of money at it. So when we're looking at cost savings, I mean, I think right there is probably a, a, a good one there if we can make that a little bit easier for growers to look at that. One of, one of the technologies that I think holds the, the, the most potential is the crop models, uh, something we really haven't talked about quite yet. Uh, uh, but uh, in essence, what you're doing is modeling the growth of your crop, and then, of course, in most cases, we're talking corn here, uh, based on the planting date, the number of heat units that have been accumulated, and from that point, uh, the pretty much most of the hybrid companies have a pretty good idea related to where the crop is going to be in terms of maturity. You know, we've got good data related to nutrient uptake at various growth stages of the crop, and then at that point, it becomes a little bit black boxy in terms of trying to decide uh, how much nitrogen may have uh, uh, mineralized out of soil organic matter, how much might have been lost from your applied fertilizer. But I guess in a big picture standpoint, you know, if we look at just simply our nitrogen rate trial data, there's a high percentage of sites where the economic optimum nitrogen rate is below and sometimes a lot below where we actually establish our recommended recommended rates at which again those are variable anyway but but uh, if you looked at an individual site where that number would come out to be the problem is of course is who really wants to go and under fertilize you know just leaving it to a flip of a coin that may be too much or too little and so the question ultimately becomes with these crop models can they actually start predicting the circumstances where we don't need as much uh, of any particular crop input, nitrogen and so forth, based on weather conditions, growing conditions, field conditions, or maybe some history things. 
uh, that, that are not even possible to know, but if you've got 10 years worth of yield data, it starts coming out in terms of how things uh, uh, play out on a yearly basis and so forth. There's a lot of potential uh, with those products uh, to, to get more site-specific with management. Uh, I think the problem is, of course, um, growers have to have confidence in those, and we're just not at that point yet. Yeah, and, and farmers being so risk-averse, it's, it's really going to be up to them to kind of shift into the, to a, a lean management philosophy, like you're getting at, Brad, I think, with you know, starting low, and then adding as needed as opposed to starting adequate and adding more, uh, you know, the willingness to kind of go into that new realm of this more of a, a lean management philosophy where I'm only going to use exactly what I need and try to dial that in, which I don't think we're quite there yet in, in, in terms of the technology. But uh, that's going to be where we see a, a bigger benefit, I think, over time. Well, I think the main thing is, is looking at what the overall cost is, particularly these models per acre, because in, just in looking at, you know, I, I just had a meeting talked recently talking about some of this data that I know, Brad, that you had generated, and then we had, all three of us had generated with one of the, some on-farm trials, and I mean, a lot of that data was showing that we were able to reduce our end rate by maybe 15 pounds over our flat rate. And the question is, is that enough? I mean, at 40 cents a pound, I mean, you're looking at a cost savings of six bucks. Is that enough to pay for the cost of the model and the additional application if I could have just got away with a flat rate for a single application? Because we're likely going to see the fact you're, already, you're going to have that pre-planned application that you're going to already be paying for. Is that additional cost for that additional application going to pay for itself? So... I think that's the main thing. I mean, I look at it in, in some of these models. I mean, we have to either be looking at you know substantially underfertilizing where we're on the lower end of that economic situation, or we have to be looking at a situation where you can at least cut back by I would say 20 pounds or more to to make a lot of these things pay. And if you look at you know where you're at towards that upper end of that response curve, um, you just when you start looking at just trimming back 10, 15 pounds, it always it doesn't necessarily mean that much in terms of of yield difference on it. So, I mean, you're already kind of in that situation where you, you really have to look at cutting things back quite a bit to really be able to save a lot on it. And that's one of the, the things that I see with these things moving forward is, is, yes, they might work, but do we get enough benefit out of it where it's, it's better than what our, our regular our recommendations are? Well, the, the, the point that I make frequently, and I know my, uh, my quote on this has been uh, used uh, with, with other podcasts in a rather provocative way uh, in the past, but the, the concept that you can't increase yields by reducing nitrogen rate. So if the, if the prescription technology gives you an accurate nitrogen rate and that rate is lower than what you would have applied already, you're not going to see a yield increase. You're going to still see the same yield with less nitrogen but you're not going to pay for that with increased yield with increased bushels. And so then you're right, Dan. Then the, 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 then the question becomes, you know, at, at 30 cents a pound, 40 cents a pound, how much do we really have to cut back before we start making a big difference with that? And that's ultimately, I think, in the long run, um, we need a long established track record of performance on a lot of these products before we get comfortable enough that we're going to be willing to go with that because most farmers aren't going to be comfortable with a $6 an acre savings on, on, uh, on fertilizer, especially when they probably paid $5 an acre for the prescription technology. 
and then take the chance that it's the one out of 10 where they needed a lot more nitrogen because it was too wet, too cold, whatever. Um, you know, and, and so in the long run, you know, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's still, it's still left to be written how these uh, get adopted and, and uh, just exactly what the, the long-term impact is going to be. Do you think precision farming is part of the answer for reducing nutrient loss to ground and surface waters? I, mean, I think Brad's comments there, I think, are spot on when we look at it. We've got to look at situations where I think we're grossly over-fertilizing, um, particularly, and, and try to get to some of those situations where we can get some of those things trimmed back. Uh, particularly, we're dealing with situations where we have over 200 pounds of N going on corn-following soybeans. and. Um, and we talk about rate a lot, and we start talking about technologies. I mean, I think rate is one thing. I mean, but I think looking at some of these other technologies too, like um, we start looking at some of these additives and these these other things. Um, with with nitrogen in particular, source I think is one thing that we really need to kind of take a look at on the technology side. And um, while rate is one thing, if we get the source and the timing wrong, you look at that 4R philosophy. I don't think there's going to be anything we can really do in terms of messing with rate. I mean, really, that's. One of the main thing I, I see right now, in particular with shifting of, um, we see shifting trends in some of what we have for fertilizer use, particularly going to more urea use, scares me a little bit that um, we may be relying on that more and more and more in the fall, which when we start talking about, you know, trimming back rates 10, 15 pounds and trying to fight over what's at optimum rate, you start off with the wrong, wrong product out there at the wrong time and you're, you're already setting yourself behind. Yeah, I, I think... Uh one of the things that's maybe not on the radar screen of farmers and maybe even in some cases the majority of people in agriculture is some of the the big picture 30,000 foot level technology that could play a big uh, role in this. Uh, I was at a seminar here on campus uh, from somebody that was looking at landscape sensitivity to nitrate loss and they were identifying in essence now that this was model data but of course we start with that and then we go out and we field verify, but they were talking about 10% of a watershed contributing 50% of the nitrate loss just simply because of the depth of groundwater, the soil characteristics, the proximity to surface water and some other things like that. You know, ultimately for water quality purposes, if we can identify 10% of a watershed where we need to focus our efforts, that is a technology that we can actually use to make a big difference. I mean, we talk about like, for instance, cover crops and the difficulty of getting cover crops established. Well, if we're only targeting getting them established on 10% of the ground, we can put a lot more effort into it than if we're trying to do 100%. Well, and with, with phosphorus too, I mean, you, you talk about that. I think that's a little bit of an easier one because pre precision ag, particularly with grid sampling, you identify those, those high areas. We do know that there's a, a direct link between high soil test values and loss potential. So you could avoid those areas with application. Um, you could you try to at least target some practices to try to reduce some uh, phosphorus loss into that. So that one I think is a little bit easier. Um, some of these other technologies, you know, things that we're looking at right now, like the um, some of these biostimulants. It'll be interesting to see what happens with some of these things um, because I don't think they're necessarily going to be the answer. Particularly, they're not going to be the answer to completely supplant nitrogen application. We know that's just unrealistic. That the corn crop needs too much and we're not going to be able to put enough bugs in the soil to be able to supply all the nitrogen to that particular corn crop but uh, you know whether they can help you know maybe save a side dress application supply a little bit of nitrogen that's 
kind of the thing that's that's really needs to be looked at at this point. But um, you know, we can throw a lot of technologies in there, and there's a lot of things that are being sold out there. Um, I think just the tried and true soil sampling, at least on the phosphorus side, is kind of the easy one. I mean, we, we know we can identify which areas are going to be most risk for loss. And if we go back to some of those primary precision technologies, so your your guidance and steering, your shutoffs, uh, auto shutoffs, it gets easier to farm around areas. So if you're looking at some of the things I think, Brad, you were getting to, like a land use change in a, in a small portion of a farm field, uh, it's it's easier to, to farm around those things. Even things like waterways now, we're you can spray right over the top, and your auto shutoff will keep the waterway alive. And you can plant around these things in in an easier fashion. And along those lines, I think uh, we look at uh, some of the guidance, in particular RTK, and some of the the newer versions of of that. Uh, uh, have allowed for greater adoption or better, more efficient adoption of strip till, which can play a role in, in soil loss and, and some of the phosphorus concerns. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, you got a good point there, Ryan, and it even goes back to almost where we were at the start, that, that concept of using yield maps as profit maps, know, your, know what your crop costs on a per acre basis and know where your break even is. And from a producer standpoint, if you simply can look at your yield map in terms of where am I making money, where am I losing money, uh, if there's parts of the field on, that you're losing money on a consistent basis, why, why continue to stick money in there? You know, particularly if there's options like, say, CRP or something that, that uh, uh, could at least uh, cover your taxes and some of your overhead, and, and then you know, you've freed up time and capital for better ground. Um, a lot of that stuff comes at a bigger level than just simply looking at, uh, you know, well, how much phosphorus am I putting on at this exact point in the field? Um, th there's a lot of stuff that's going to transpire over the next 10 to 15 years uh, that's probably going to, pro frankly, probably going to change the way the landscape looks when it's all said and done. All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find out about podcast episodes as well as our blog posts and videos by subscribing to Minnesota Crop News email alerts. Just Google Minnesota Crop News and click Get Minnesota Crop News by email at the top of the homepage. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UMN Nutrient MGMT. Thanks for listening.